opportunities. Our blessed Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you, Father, for blessing us this day, this week. Father, we thank you for the amount of time and energy and effort you put into each and every one of us, Father. And we pray that we put a, a responsible amount of energy in doing the things that you would have us, have us to do, Father, especially in loving one another and serving and honoring and glorifying you. Father, as we go through this lesson, Father, may we glean from it things that will be helpful in our walk of faith, Father, to help better prepare us for the return of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Father, these things we pray and thank you for in Christ Jesus' most holy name. Amen and amen. So in First and Second Thessalonians, what we have are two letters, two letters that Paul wrote to a, a young church that he established in 51 A.D. And there were, t- there were some key ideas that he had in this particular lesson. And idea number one is this. He wanted to express his joy over the fact that despite all the things that they were going through, and they were going through a lot, uh, they were persevering in faithfulness and knowledge and brotherly love and preparing for the return of Christ Jesus. And number two, number two, he wanted to give them information about the events surrounding the return of Jesus. So in, this, in his first letter, in his first letter, he describes what will happen to Christians, both living and dead, when Christ Jesus returns. And he encourages them very strongly to be ready and in the second letter, he, he switches gears, if you will. What he does here is explains what is going to happen to sinners and the unfaithful when Christ Jesus appears again. So in this, part, in this vein, he encourages them not to be disheartened by what the wicked are doing. Because what he's saying to them is this right here. When Christ Jesus returns, he will reward and he will punish according to the person's deeds. So after this, Paul continues his letter by providing instructions concerning the events that will take place prior to Christ Jesus' return. So when we look at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 of this particular text, oops, pushed the wrong button. So chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, when we look at this text, listen to what Paul is saying here and see if you can read between the lines a little bit. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So they had, pe- they had people telling them, hey, you know, that, that, what, that stuff that Paul has told you about the coming of Christ Jesus, this second coming, it's already happened. And guess what? <laughs> you are still here. And so you can imagine how that, that was that was affecting people. So again, if you read between the lines here, that is what you're going to see. And that's what's the core problem of the church, if you will. Someone claiming this prophecy. 
someone claiming to have this authority, someone claiming to have this teaching from an apostle that the second coming has already occurred and you guys are just out there. Someone may have promoted this idea that that um, um, the idea that, that they were already in the midst of it and that uh, it was or it was very near. They was telling them something. So the effect on the church then, it's just like anything else when you start hearing things that's contrary to what you've been taught and what you understand, accept, and believe. It seems that they were becoming spiritually un- unbalanced, spiritually unbalanced, that they were becoming agitated, if you will. They were becoming confused. And you will get confused when you start getting these conflicting ideas. So what Paul does is this. He actually, the word you want to use here is strong, begs. He begs them not to lose their composure. He begs them to be, not to become overly disturbed with these teachings, with these false notions that these teachers are bringing in. And he's telling them, whatever the source, whatever the source, he discounts it and affirms that before the day of the Lord, when, that the day of the Lord being the day that Christ Jesus returns, before the day of the Lord comes, other significant events must take place first. And he goes on to give details about these events. So we look at verses uh, 3 through 12. What we find... Let's go ahead and read it. We have the time. Let's go ahead and read it. Uh, Verses 3 through 12. The Bible reads, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. And he's talking about the last day when Christ Jesus returned. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And that man of lawlessness is also referred to as the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God you do not or rather do you not remember that when I was still with you I told you these things and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus Christ will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This passage... This passage is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to understand. Even the Apostle Peter attests to this fact that sometimes Paul's writing can be very, very difficult to understand. And he, we, we can read about this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. In addition to the complicated ideas to grasp here, 
this section is written in a in a literary style if you will that is impossible to understand unless we have some background on the terms that are being used here uh, this particular passage was written in the apocalyptic literary style that was filled with symbolic words and images the word apocalyptic means to uh, rather uncovering or a revealing. It was a style of writing used by many of the ancient world, any in the ancient world, I should say, including including prophets and other Old Testament writers to describe uh, in dramatic terms the content of their prophecies. They also used this type of language to warn the nations about impending war, a judgment from God. And we see other examples of this at Daniel chapter 7 at verse 3 when, you, when we read about those dreams. Ezekiel chapter 32 at verse 2 when we read about those visions. And in Joel, Joel as well as Acts 2 verses 19 and 20 when we talk about prophecy. So the apocalyptic style was mainly used in times of trouble or at those periods when the Jews were oppressed. In many instances, the writing was understandable only to the Jews, but not to others because of the symbols that were being used. They were, they, they were only understood, if you will, by the Jews. The style was also used by New Testament writers for the same reasons. If we see examples of this with uh, Christ Jesus when he was speaking in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 34, when he was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. We also see it, uh, Paul, as we're ta- talking about here in Second Thessalonians, when he talks about the apostrophe apostasy I should say and the second coming of Christ Jesus and also John in the book of Revelation when he talks about the destruction of Rome and the judgment so the thing to remember about this style is this it is a coded style of writing it is a coded message intended to the reader to understand it may be disturbing to read but it was actually meant (laughs) to comfort and encourage God's people in times of trouble. At other times, it was to warn or to point to events that would take place in the future. Now, all of these, whatever they were doing here, they used symbols. And this is the language that Paul switches to in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. So, we cannot discern this message unless we understand then the symbolism in which the message was written. So in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 3 through 8 uh, before we search for the overall meaning let's look at some of the key terms that are being used here. We talk about apostasy apostasy rebellion. We see this in verse 3 and we said this earlier, apostasy is to fall away. But it gets more specific than just falling away. In this case, it means to fall away from Christ. It means to fall away from the teachings of Christ. Apostasy in the New Testament refers only to the Christian faith. For example, Muslims cannot be apostate because they were never in the faith to begin with. We can refer to non-believers as pagans or, or the lost, but for the Christian who go away from Christ, the Christian who go away from the teaching of Christ Jesus, 
the correct term to be used is an apostate or an apostasy. Number two that I want to point out is man of lawlessness. Now, Mike, <laughs> Mike and I was having a discussion about this last week, and I'm glad we did because we got to this, and we finally got to this point. Man of lawlessness, of son of, a son of destruction, we see at verse three. Lawlessness means what? Sin. That's it. So the man of lawlessness is the man of sin and the man of sinfulness. Now, in this particular text here, the way Paul is, uh, Paul is describing it really gets to be confusing because, you see, this particular man of lawlessness is a one-of-a-kind, unique personality. It can be a power. It can be an organization that embodies sin. So when we think of man of lawlessness, what other terms can we use for that? What other terms? Man of lawlessness. What's that? Okay, man of unrighteousness. Antichrist. Son of destruction. Perdition. All of these refer to the same thing. Now, verse 6, he talks about restraining influence. Okay? Now, this restraining influence is the person or the power that restrains the man of lawlessness. Whatever, whatever form he takes, individual or organization, doesn't matter. It restrains that man of lawlessness by declaring his or its position or revealing himself. In other words, Christ Jesus is revealing himself. Uh, and then uh, mystery of lawlessness, verses 7. This refers to the actual outworking of evil generated by apostasy. Just like the outworking of good caused by uh, the word of God and building the kingdom can be seen in the good works and conduct, apostasy also spreads its influence in a negative way. Kind of like, you might say, how yeast has an impact on whatever you put it in, especially in dough. And then uh, verse 8, it talks about breath of his mouth. And here it's talking about the word of God. It's talking about the scriptures. And we can read also how this relates in uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 16. Number 6, the appearance of his coming, verse 8. Here we're talking about the second coming or the return of Christ Jesus. Then we get into prophecy. Okay, prophecy. Paul is prophesying here. He's prophesying based on not something he's thinking, something just popped in his head. He's prophesying based on revelation that God has given him. He's telling them what will happen in the future. He's telling them what will happen at the end of time. Now, you think about that. There's a, there, there, sometimes there can be, a lot of times, there's a void between, you know, uh, the future and the end of time in there. How much time is actually in there? And this is the same when he describes what will happen to the faithful and the wicked at the end. Now, one thing to note, and we want to note this to avoid confusion if we can. See, prophecy gives the facts of what will happen. Prophecy gives a succession of events that will take place, but it rarely gives the time. It rarely gives the time of the time in between 
all of these events that it's talking about. So we know what is going to take place. We know the order of the things, but we do not know when they are going to happen, how much time elapses between the events or when all of these events will be completed. For example, think back on Matthew chapter 11. Now, remember John the baptizer. He was there and he baptized Christ Jesus. And remember all those things he said about Christ Jesus. All those wonderful things he said about him. You, you would think when he, by the time he finished, there was nothing that could confuse him. He knew who Christ Jesus was. He prophesied of the coming of the Messiah as well as the judgment of the Jewish nation. We see this in Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And in his mind, these two events, however, were to happen at the same time which would explain why he, when he was imprisoned by Pharaoh, uh, by, not Pharaoh, by Herod, he sent his disciples to Jesus to inquire if Jesus was truly the Messiah, chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. I think the words were, go to him and ask him, is he the one, or do we seek another? He was confused. He was confused because Christ Jesus, the Messiah, was here on this earth, but when he was looking around, there were no signs of judgment on the nation. It's like, okay, you're here. What you going to do? So when we look at history and everything, we find that 37 years after Christ Jesus' death and resurrection and some 40 years after John's death at the hands of Herod, what happens? God's judgment on Jerusalem, spoken of by John, came down to the, on the city in the form of the Roman army. In 70 AD, the nation of Israel came to an end as the Roman armies destroyed the city and killed most of the people. John's prophecy was fulfilled, the prophecy he received from God. You see, it's clear to say, fair to say that John understood the events. He understood the sequence correctly, but he didn't know the time in between these events. So in the passage of 2 Thessalonians, we see Paul predicting what will happen in the future. And he explains the sequence of these events, but not their time frame. It could have all happened during their lifetimes in the first century. It could have happened 10,000 years later before it's fulfilled. He had no idea. All he knew was this. It will happen in the sequence that it has been spoken of. But only God knows when. When we study this passage then, what we uh, are studying, what we're doing is we're studying the meaning and the sequence of what will take place, but we have no idea when. We know Christ Jesus is going to return. We know all of these. My granddad used to say this a lot. Before the end of the world, there will be wars and rumors of wars. So in my granddaddy's mind, World War I, that's the end of the world. World War II, that's the end of the world. Vietnam, that's the end of the world. Because, yeah, God said before the end of the world, there would be wars and rumors of wars, but he, he didn't name one. <laughs> he didn't name which one. And he's not going to name which one. But have there been a lot of wars? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a world war for it to be a war. We got a war going on right now in this, all over this country, this world. So, Let's look at the sequence of events. 
Again, we're looking at verses 3 through 12. So Paul explains two major events that must take place before the return of Christ Jesus. Major events. He explained this to what? To calm their fears because they were confused. And they were thinking that Christ Jesus had already returned. He had already, it already happened and they missed out on it. He left us here. Or it was to happen very soon. So we talked about the apostasy, and we see this again in verse 3. The return of Jesus does not happen until this takes place. The, the apostasy is a rebellion. It's a falling away in faith to Christ Jesus in obedience to his word. It takes place within Christianity. Paul mentions that apostasy was inevitable and likely within their lifetime. I want to go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, uh, verses 28 through 30. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. Hear what the Bible says. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And also Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. There the Bible reads, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. The apostasy is the action of leaving the truth and embracing a lie. It is the love of what is not true. It is the ultimate cause of condemnation. The apostasy began in the first century. It began in the first century as teachers, from what we read here, rose up to deny the divinity of Christ Jesus. And it continues to this day as many Christian groups deny the inspiration of scriptures and teach that Christ Jesus was not here in the flesh, but rather he was just an angel. The Jehovah Witnesses teach this. Or they teach that, uh, that a man became God. Uh, not Christ Jesus came from God, but, that a man, but he's, he's just a man who became a God. Not God, a God. And that's basically what the Mormons are teaching. So in verses 3 through 7, we see the law, the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, the big question is, the big question is, what is he like? We look at verse 3. He could tell us that he's a one of a kind person or personage that could be embodied in a personality, could be embodied in an organization, could be embodied in a philosophy, could be embodied in a movement. And an illustration might be Hitler with Nazism. Hidden at first, then revealed. Verse 4, he opposes every god or object of worship. 
And when I say God, I'm not talking about God. I'm talking about those, in, those things that think they are God. He does not deny there is a God. He never said that. He said God does exist, but opposes every form of deity. He takes God's place within God's sanctuary or God's dwelling place. He places himself where God is and makes himself equal with God within Christianity. God's sanctuary on earth is within the hearts and minds of his people, which means where is the man of lawlessness trying to get to? Within our hearts, within the hearts of those who are children of God. That's where he's trying to get to. He's not trying to get on some pedestal out there. He's trying to get in here. And unfortunately, we let him in. Verses seven, uh, 5 and 7. His influence is manifested before he is. Uh, before you see him, you see what he's bringing about. It's like a, a seed, right? You plant a seed in the ground. And it develops roots. It develops a stalk. It develops leaves before it blooms. He will develop an evil influence. And with time, will mature to manifest himself for who and what he truly is. The man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, the Antichrist, as someone said over here. Now Paul says that his influence is and was being restrained at the time Paul wrote his letters to the Thessalonians. It had not bloomed yet, but was already at work in its evil influence. This manifestation, he says, was being restrained by a person, a power, or a combination of which, which will be later removed. So then the question is, what will the man of lawlessness do? We take you to verses uh, 13, 9 through 13. What will the man of lawlessness do? Verses 9 through 13. Show me the right one here. Verses 9 through 13, the Bible reads, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. What will happen when this man, what will he be doing, this man of lawlessness? He will deceive people in the name of God, check that out. He will deceive people in the name of Christ to seduce them to believe what is false, to seduce them to activity or action to the point that they will be lost because of it. He will do this using all manner of false power, all manner of false signs, all manner of false wonders, all manner of wicked lies, all manners of deception. 
these powerful weapons and they are powerful and necessary to convince people that the lie is true. My granddad used to tell me this all the time. He said, if you tell a lie long enough, people start to believe it is truth. He's consistent. Satan is consistent with his lies. And where we mess up is we start believing that lie as truth. And he uses that against us. He will know he's a liar. He will know he's a liar. He's not trying to be anything he's not. He will lie on purpose. He will do, he will do this so that he can destroy the souls of men. We see this in verse 10. So Paul tells us in advance. He tells us in advance why Christians will, check this out, why we will believe these lies. Now talk about God being proactive. He's, he's given Paul instructions to give to us of why we will believe these lies, which means if you tell us why we will believe them, we know what not to do to believe them. So what does he say? Those who would believe the lies, they don't love the truth. They love sin. They love the world. They love self, but not the truth. We re- I refer you to John 3 at verse 19. So God also says this right here. God gives them what they desire. You want the lie? You can have it. You want the lie? You can have it. If that is your desire to have this lie, God will allow the man of lawlessness to work his works so that those who those among the believers who love the lies will get their fill of it you want it you got it the deluded influence is the cumulative effect that's produced by believing error by believing lies by hearing it over and over and over and over again to get to the point where we think it's true God doesn't send lies God doesn't send error but he does permit and direct where Satan may work. You don't believe it? Go back and read Job. Go back and read Job. Satan needed permission in order to attack him. People who love wickedness eventually refuse to listen, refuse, eventually uh, get to the point where they refuse to accept truth, if you will. And they will have ample time to demonstrate their evil. They will have ample time to demonstrate error and to also demonstrate just how God is condemning and punishing them. So here's the next question. What will happen to him? The man of lawlessness. Verse 8. God will destroy him in two steps. The breath of his mouth and the truth and the word of truth and the appearance of his son the return of Christ Jesus for the judgment of all liars. God will speak and God will send forth his son. So then, as we close this lesson tonight, remember that all these events will take place, but we don't know when. We don't know if they will take place all at once. We don't know if they will take place over a period of time, but they will take place. And remember, Apostasy is not waiting to start in 2024. It started back in century number one. And if we think back over our lives, especially we who are older people, we know people who have turned their back on God. We know people who have turned their back on God's word. We know people who are guilty of apostasy. We know people who've been there and done that. 
Some of us may have gone there and done that ourselves and had the wisdom to come back. Uh, Buell Smith, a gentleman I met a long time ago, he's since passed away, 27 years old. He became an apostate. He turned his back on God. He's turned his back on God's word. But by the grace of God, at 92 years old, he realized the error of his ways. And he came back. We have the opportunity to come back as long as we breathe. We have the opportunity to come back. But let nobody tell you, oh, I messed up. God don't want anything to do with me anymore because I did that, I did that, I did that. Who's telling you that? The man of lawlessness. He's telling you that. Of course he's going to tell you that. And he's going to keep telling you that. He's going to keep telling you that. Go to a prison. I think, Tracy, you're in the prison ministry. And, yeah, and Christy. And you guys have probably heard this, heard it as well. I have done things so bad, there's no way in the world God is going to forgive me. Who's telling them that? The man of lawlessness. He's not going to forgive you. He don't love you. You messed up. Forget it. You may as well go on out there all the way now. And people start believing it. So, thank you all for joining me tonight. Are there any questions or comments before we close up? Yes. So the, so the question is, how do you connect this with what's going on in mega churches today? When I do my devotional after this, I'm going to cover one point. Our job is not to judge other churches. Our job is to do what God will have us do because the time that we're spending trying to cut down and, and dissect what they're teaching is taking away time we have to actually teach what God actually says and going back to the prison I saw it happen to me and it's probably happened to these ladies as well you're there you're trying to teach a group of people about God and somebody will come in and ask you one of the most mundane questions they can possibly ask you and want you to spend all of your time looking in the Bible for something that no not there and when they used to happen to me I was quick to tell them look if you think it's there you go find it and bring it back to me but I do not have time to be, be chasing down these rabbit holes for you. I came in here to teach a lesson, and that's what I'm going to teach. I'm not here to, to break down what some preacher over here told you. I'm here to teach from the Word of God. Because when you start getting me to do this, you're taking me away from what I came there to do. And plus, being in the prison, when you start doing that in a prison, that's one way to get kicked out of that prison. Because that person that asked you that question, if you say anything negative or whatever about that preacher that told them this, that person going to beat feet over to the prison chaplain and say, you know what those people from the Church of Christ said? And then we get called before the, the prison minister, a chaplain, and if it happens too many times, we're no longer in that facility. And so what I always told people, like, I came here to do this. If you got a question about something that other man told you, you go talk to him. But don't come talk to me about it. I don't have anything to say. I wasn't there. I'm leaving it alone. That's all we can do. We're not here to judge that. 
We're here just to teach God's word and make disciples of all the nations, according to Matthew 28. Any other questions or comments? Thank you for that. All right. So then we got a few minutes to fellowship before we go into our devotional. And thank you again for joining me tonight. And thank you for your comments. We will go into uh, lesson number uh, nine on Sunday.